I'd like to welcome Mikey and Jeannie to the Wayward Muse podcast. They lead the team at High Road Kitchens, an organization that presents the opportunity to build a new, more equitable, and sustainable industry for all. How are you two doing? Doing well, thanks. Great. Thanks for having us. Oh, of course. As I understand it, you both are in D.C., but before people can understand why, I think we need to learn a little bit more about you both. So uh, my name is Mikey Nab. I use he, him pronouns. I live in occupied Kumeyaay territory, which is commonly referred to as San Diego, California. Uh, I run the Mesa Family Restaurant Group, which is three restaurants. We have two in San Diego and one in Portland, Oregon. They're all full service, casual Mexican restaurants. Uh, in addition to that, I am the National Strategy Director for raise high road restaurants which i run with genie and the program that you mentioned is called high road kitchens and we can i'm sure we'll talk more about that as we go on but uh i'll pass it to the other half of meanie which is genie we're not mean they just that's how our names go together so. hi uh, my name's genie i use she her pronouns i live in occupied duwamish territory which is and our city is named after their chief seattle i've been in the restaurant industry my whole life i my parents emigrated to this country um, and grandparents i should say they both had chinese restaurants on the East Coast. And I've been living in Seattle for the last 20 years, managing mostly fine dining restaurants. After the pandemic, I started a restaurant coalition um, called Seattle Restaurants United to advocate for um, restaurants in our area. We have 250 members. And um, because of that work, I was invited to join the Independent Restaurant Coalition. I sit on their advisory board and I'm the co-chair of the policy committee. So we help write the Restaurants Act of 2020. For work, I am the other half of Mani, like Mikey said, and Mikey and I run um, Raise Hybrid Restaurants together. I'm the director of engagement. Well, thank you both very much for that. I love your guys' intro so much because it creates a really good understanding of where you all are coming from, your perspectives, and gets us ready to go forward with our discussion. So talk to us more about this creation that you both have made in High Road. Well, so Raise High Road Restaurants, we didn't create it. We run it together now, uh, but it was founded, I think, about 10 years ago uh, by a bunch of restaurant owners who believe in a commitment to high road practices, which take the form of increased wages, improved working conditions, and commitments to race and gender equity in our industry, which, by the way, is a very inequitable industry in terms of race and gender RAISE, as it was called at the time, stands for Restaurants Advancing Industry Standards and Employment. Uh, that was named by Andy Shalal, the owner of Bus Boys and Poets in the DMV region of the country, DC, Maryland, Virginia. But that's a whole mouthful. And it's it, it's easy to say when it's just raised, but it's kind of hard when you try to remember what I just said and <laughs> repeat it to someone. So uh, last year when Jeannie and I took over, we decided to add a tagline. So, you know, there's Nike, just do it. Well, now there's raise high road restaurants. And it kind of, the tagline explains a little more about uh, what I just mentioned. So um, I can tell the origin story of how Jeannie and I came on to work with the organization. Uh, I'll try to be succinct, but essentially I, I joined as my restaurant, as a member, my restaurant group, as members of Raise a couple years ago. And I joined because I met the founder of One Fair Wage, whose name is Saru Jayaraman. Raise, even though it was named by Andy Shalal, was the brainchild of Saru and is funded by the One Fair Wage campaign. It's an affiliate of the One Fair Wage campaign. One Fair Wage is a workers' rights organization that focuses on ending the subminimum wage for all workers that can be paid that, which mostly is restaurant workers, but also includes differently abled workers, youth, incarcerated workers, and scary enough, the gig economy. So people who drive for Uber, DoorDash, Instacart, uh, this, this horrible, inequitable wage structure is creeping into that industry that's growing exponentially, specifically during the pandemic. I met Saru when she came to San Diego, where I live, hoping to start a raised chapter there. And she asked people, you know, I need to meet some progressive restaurant owners and talk about, you know, moving a chapter in this region. And everyone said, well, you got to meet this Mikey guy. So I'm sitting across the table from this amazing person who's never worked in the restaurant industry, but somehow is saying everything I've ever thought much more articulately than I could ever imagine saying it. And I'm just like, this is a personification of the greatest ideas of how to improve our industry. And I was immediately sold. So we joined as members and I became engaged with, with Raise. And then last March, so right before everything shut down due to the pandemic, we went to DC for a conference to meet each other, you know, a bunch of members of Raise. I would say there were probably 80 or, or 100 Raise members all meeting in DC 
to talk about the work, how we could advance industry standards and employment. And, 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 and basically we did what restaurant people do. We hung out afterwards. We went to dinner, we had drinks, we talked, we schemed right on how, how to accomplish our goals. And that's when I met Jeannie uh, and she was at dinner with us. And we, you know, we, we thought, we thought, wow, this, this, organization has so much potential, right? And then we all flew home and everything had to shut down. All of our restaurants were dark. And, and I don't mean to tell the whole story because Jeannie has a really important part to tell as well. So I, I'll try not to be so verbose, but we had time on our hands for the first time in a long time. You know, people that run restaurants, it, it, it's interesting. Someone told me the other day, they said, you know, I started as a dishwasher. I worked my way up to owner and then I became a dishwasher again because when you're an owner and the dishwasher calls in sick, and no one else can cover, the dishes still have to get done. So there you go, right? And it kind of roots you and it humbles you and reminds you of there's a whole piece to all of it, right? And Jeannie and I would talk on the phone and get on Zoom and things and say, well, you know, these schemes that we were hatching in DC, we've got time on our hands, let's do it. So we committed to leaning into it. And for me personally, I removed myself a bit from the operation side of my restaurant group and I, to let my managers be creative and make better decisions than I can make on my own. And I came on as staff at Ray's High Road Restaurants in April because I had the time and I, and I was motivated. Uh, and then I worked and worked and worked on convincing Jeannie that she should do the same. And she finally uh, caved and joined in August. So maybe Jeannie, would you mind telling your half of the meanie origin story? Is there, is there more that I left out? I don't think you left anything out. I also had signed up. I was the director of operations for Sea Creatures, which is Renee Erickson's restaurant group. We have 20 properties around the Seattle area. Or I should say she does because I don't work for her any longer. But so I had signed Ray's Sea Creatures to be members of Ray's about four or five years ago. Yeah, something like that. And so that's why I flew to DC and, and met Mikey. So what do you think the cardinal virtues of Rays are? If you were to highlight them again, what do you think the One Fair Wage Act would be able to create for the restaurant industry? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so what we care about most is creating, eliminating systemic racism in, in the restaurant sector, you know, and that takes a lot of work. Um, but we're starting because we're, you know, a subsidiary of one fair wage. We're starting with um, wages. You know, you can't have racial justice without wage parity, full stop, period. Um, and that's why we're fighting so hard for it. And currently we have the reason Mikey and I are in D.C. is because there's a bill that was introduced this week by Senator Sanders and Representative Bobby Scott called Brace the Wage Act. It has the support of the president and um, we just wanna make sure that it passes in its entirety. Um, there are some moderate Democrats out there. So we're just really focused on those offices and ensuring that they support this. Um, the Raise the Wage Act would bring the, the minimum wage from 725 up to $15 an hour by 2025. And it, it will eliminate the sub-minimum wage um, by 2027, depending on when the bill is introduced. So um, we're really hopeful, and that includes not just the tip minimum wage for service workers, but also um, differently abled folks and the youth. So I, well, I can tell you a few ways that we do that here in our couple of programs that we run here. So um, Mikey and I are in charge of two different programs. I run the Race and Gender Equity Training and Money. Mikey runs Hyro Kitchen Program. The Race and Gender Equity Training is a three course module. Everything is free. You can find our toolkit on our website at um, highroadrestaurants.org. Um, and basically the toolkit is an assessment. Um, you do an assessment of your restaurant and you set some goals for yourself and there's, there's some best practices in there for you to start implementing those. The three course module is, um, the first course is um, kind of identifying systemic racism within the restaurant sector, where you can find it and what you can do to um, start addressing some of those things. The second module is just based on recruitment hiring, training, and promotional practices. So it's not just enough. We do have diversity. A lot of restaurants do have diversity, but we know it's a two-tiered system, right? Where you have like people of color, either in, specifically in the back of the house, or if they're in the front of the house, they're in lower paid positions like bussers, runners, bar backs. Um, and even in the kitchen, they're in the dishwashing position, like in fine, finer dining restaurants, they're in the dishwashing position or the prep cook. You don't really see them as sous chefs or chefs. Um, and so, we, what's really important in the second module, we make sure that like people really look, restaurant owners really look at mobility, like how you have diversity in your space. How are you creating ladders of mobility to make sure that there's representation and leadership? So that's where the real change is going to come. And then the third module is that work culture. So now you have these folks in the space. How do you continue to make sure that they have a space where they're thriving? 
Um, and we found a lot of success with the program. Um, and as and what we're doing after is just continuing to keep folks together so that they could stay in a cohort and continue to be in community with each other and, and continue to learn from each other. And, and it's been really, really great so far. And we're hoping to stay in contact with these folks so that we can collect real data on the practices that are working. Um, that's in a nutshell. Mikey, do you want to talk about High Road Kitchens? I love talking about High Road Kitchens. So uh, High Road Kitchens is a program that we conceived of in response to COVID right after Meany got back from DC to our respective cities and everything had to shut down. We realized that there were some immediate challenges that needed addressing. Um, so, and there were three that we identified immediately feeding people who were food insecure, which there are, there were a massively growing number of those folks who were for the first time food insecure. Maybe folks didn't even realize that they were entering into that community so feeding people, the second is employing people who had been laid off, furloughed, or had their hours significantly decreased because of the crisis. And then really supporting and amplifying the work of, of independently owned restaurants that had made commitments to high road employment practices. Uh, so we developed a public-private partnership. Uh, we raised funds from foundations and some individual donors. And then we worked with uh, local governments, municipalities, cities, counties, states, to leverage the funds to make a cash grant program for these restaurants to bring their employees back in order to prepare and distribute meals for their community. Most of them did it on a, a sliding scale, a scaled payment model, where you could choose to pay zero for your meal if you're someone who's food insecure. You could choose to pay regular price if you just wanted lunch and you wanted to support your local restaurant, or you could pay double or triple. And then that would mean that you would be paying meals forward and donating to the program uh, so that the restaurant could feed even more people. Uh, we launched in California. We had 50 high road kitchens in the first California cohort. Uh, my restaurant was the very first high road kitchen. I made myself the guinea pig so that if there were any challenges, I would have to be the one to live through that. Uh, and there were some, but we learned. And as we built more, we, we addressed those and, and made it a smoother operation. Uh, but in, on April 22nd, we started and we had a commitment of 500 free meals. And so many people in my community paid extra for their meal, or they simply smashed that donate button uh, because there were two kinds of people. There are people who are hungry to eat and people who are hungry to help. And the program feeds both of those hungers. And so many folks in my community donated meals through the program that I had a 500 meal commitment on April 22nd. By May 22nd, one month later, we were committed to 2,600 meals. The program was meant to be eight weeks long. That was how much funding we had to support the employment of, of the employees who were brought back. But because of that scaled payment model at my restaurant, we ended up going all the way from April through the end of the year last year. So essentially eight months instead of eight weeks. And we served 7,600 free meals over the course of the program. So we leveraged those philanthropic dollars that we had raised through, through donors. The meals ended up costing less than a dollar each because our community supported it. Uh, and the best part was that third challenge that I said we were trying to address, which is supporting and amplifying restaurants that make these high road commitments. Those donations don't go to raise high road restaurants or to one fair wage or to the state of California. They go to me. They go into the restaurant's bank account. And in April, on April 22nd, when we started, we had been closed for six weeks. This is how I refilled my walk-in. Uh, this is how I brought employees back to do to prep. So we ran like 40 something thousand dollars through the program, even though the grant was only 5,000. So it was just exponentially supported by our guests and our neighbors. And that was, I, that was an unexpected sort of beautiful element to it. So those are the three immediate challenges we're trying to solve and, and address with the program. But the longer term goals are also a set of three. It's save restaurants, increase wages, because why save restaurants if you don't save their employees too? Uh, that's what makes our industry magic. And the third is to create this network, this this sticky network of restaurant owners across the region, across the state, the city, the county, the country, who, who are committed to race and gender equity, right? And that's why there's also a number three in the three commitments that the restaurants make to join the program. Free meals is, is one commitment, scaling up to paying one fair wage within five years of the start of the program, which is really easy for California restaurants because it's already the law that you have to do that in California. So that one was automatic. And the third one is to go through the race and gender equity training program that Jeannie just described that she runs with our colleague, Teresa. We launched in the state of California first. 
Then we did New York City, which it's a heavier lift because those restaurants had to actually commit to increasing wages. There, there is still a sub-minimum two-tiered wage system in New York City. Uh, so these, we have 100 restaurants in New York City that have made these commitments. Uh, then Boston, we have 35 restaurants in the city of Boston. Chicago, we have 40 restaurants in the, in the city of Chicago. Uh, I'm launching in Detroit next week with the program. And we have one restaurant in New Orleans and one restaurant in Austin, Texas. These are, these are our beautiful outliers that um, made the program work without, without us pushing it as a, as a public-private partnership in their region. So, it, it, and it's so exciting to talk about and to see these restaurants become a community with each other. I'm really, really impressed with all of them, but I want to call out the Chicago cohort because they've been like so inspirational. They've, we've got a email chain where all of them are on it. These are people mostly who have never met each other before and suddenly they're best friends. They're posting each other's menus. They're, they're, they're sharing photos and videos. They're helping each other program their POS so that they can offer them meals for free because restaurants are good at finding customers who have money to pay for food. They're not so great at finding people who can't afford it but they're all helping each other. And it's just, it reminds me and Jeannie, and you know, we don't like to speak for each other, but I know she feels this way of why we're in the hospitality sector in the first place of what can happen when people commune over food, have conversation with each other, and you just get more honesty in those spaces. And so that's been, I mean, I feel like the right work found me, you know, I I know how to run restaurants, but now I'm in this weird political space and I'm doing a lot of advocacy, but I'm rooted in this feeling of community. And, and, and that's really the most, it's the most incredible thing to see these restaurants help each other. And, and it, it makes me excited to do my work every day. Well, thank you for sharing that excellent summation of where you are at now and where you've come from. As you were describing it, I I was thinking of a few different things. All of the places that you've done this are in major metropolitan areas. Restaurants have different challenges in more rural areas where they might be one of three restaurants and to commit to that higher wage might price them out of the competition, where the competition is very comfortable paying $2.73 an hour. And in order to get to that high wage, just to commit to a high road, they would be creating a disadvantage for themselves from strictly a market standpoint, which I think more drives and points to the need for federal legislation than it does to say that it isn't feasible. What we have to do is even the playing field so that all restaurants can become equitable. And it does, right. be- it, it does begin with wage because you can say, oh, well, I'm going to make sure that I have these practices in place. But if people can't afford to have a standard of living, then they're not going to have the motivation to try and fulfill the other, other obligations. Yeah, you're exactly right. You answered your own question. Um, I want to be clear, though, to be, you know, people can make it work. But I understand if you're a mom and pop place, and you're just like, you know, you're in the kitchen cooking the food, or you're, you know, busting the table, it's like, you might not have the time to just sit down and and figure out how to make that wage model work. And totally understand that. Um, That is why it needs to be mandated by law. So everyone does it and all the boats rise together. You know, um, I want to be clear that to be a raised high road restaurant, you do not have to pay a full minimum wage to be a part of our organization, to be a member, to be invited to our calls. But what you do need to do is advocate with us, beside us and say like, look, I want to pay, I'm a business owner and I want to pay my workers more money, but you're not allowing me to because it puts me at a competitive disadvantage. That is messed up, that is messed up to put, be put at a competitive disadvantage because you don't want to exploit your workers. You know, and for those folks out there that 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 don't hear that because they always think of the they always think of like the fancy restaurants, you know, they think about like Thomas Keller or whatever, but like that's not the majority of restaurants. Like they're like, oh, those servers make so much money, they don't need a raise. And you're right, they don't need a raise. But that's not the majority of restaurants. The majority of restaurants are these mom and pop places all over the country. And they're chain restaurants and franchises and you know, dive bars and diners. And in those places, we know there's mostly people of color and they are living below the poverty line. It is unacceptable. And if you posted a freaking black square, you need to step up and advocate for this law to be mandated. 
we know that black women are make $5 less per hour than white tipped men. It's unacceptable. And in New York City and in Boston, it's $8 an hour. That's Mikey loves to tell how it's like over the course of 20 years of your career, that's over $300,000. Now we're talking about intergenerational wealth. That is a house that we are robbing black women of and it needs to stop today. How can we, as a, just the average restaurant worker, what steps can we take to help support this measure? We have a sign-on letter. This one is for restaurant owners, uh, but it's at highroadrestaurants.org slash petition. Uh, there's another one for restaurant workers that you can find at onefairwage.org. Either one of those letters, if you're a restaurant owner, go to the one first URL that I mentioned. If you're a restaurant worker or simply someone that likes to eat at restaurants and wants to see the people who prepare your meal for you and serve you food, um, make a, a livable wage, go, go to onefairwage.org and sign the letter. And it will automatically send that letter to your representatives. Once you fill out your address, it, it knows who your Congress members are and your senators, and it sends them off. And we need millions of people to sign those letters. We need the senators who are Democrats, but lean a little more conservative to hear that this is, this is needed, not just for restaurant workers, but for restaurant owners for that exact reason that Jeannie mentioned. I couldn't imagine having a restaurant in Arizona and trying to pay my workers a fair full minimum wage with tips on top and not being able to do it because the low road employer down the street can artificially keep their prices low by leveraging low wages. I couldn't imagine how frustrating that is. And I'm fortunate because my restaurants are in California and Oregon where it's mandated. So there's a level playing field. So my menu prices reflect the true cost of food and hospitality. And the chains that Jeannie mentioned, right? IHOP, Olive Garden, they know that it works because they have restaurants in the seven states that are one fair wage states. There are Olive Gardens in California, Nevada, Oregon, Washington, Minnesota, Montana, and Alaska. All seven of those states have mandated one fair wage. And if they weren't making money, they would leave. Olive Garden is owned by the biggest restaurant privately owned, or sorry, private restaurant company in the world. It's publicly traded. So they have their, their motivation is to increase shareholder value. Their motivation is not to invest in their people. Their job is to maximize profits. Profits are good. We're down with that. That's why we support each other in our network. But profits at the cost of the humans who prepare and serve the food to the communities in which they operate are not good. So we're not, we say people over profit. Really what we mean is, people and profit. You know, all of our people need to profit. So if the National Restaurant Association, and I'm going to call it out, if you're a restaurant owner and you're a member of your local restaurant association, which is an affiliate of the National Restaurant Association, you should dump them because what they're doing right now and what they've always done is advocated to subjugate our workforce, to keep wages low, to keep menu prices artificially low and that hurts all of us it's a race to the bottom when consumers think that breadsticks are free then i don't get to charge for that and we know that someone had to actually make that breadstick that comes from food that some farmers grew that comes from a vendor who paid a driver to deliver that food to us and any of us who run restaurants know that our vendors and our farmers are some of the most wonderful beautiful people that exist in our in our industry i mean I can't tell you, like around the holidays, giving cards to people and giving like little gifts to people and them coming in and bringing gifts to my, like they know my porter's name, all of them do. It just feels like that same thing I mentioned earlier about the, the community that we're in, that Jeannie and I are fortunate enough to be in running Rays. It's the same thing at that level of your one unit, your one restaurant, where your porter and your delivery driver and your farmer are all friends. That's how we that's how we keep each other safe. That's how we look out for each other. And these giant companies and the National Restaurant Association do not speak for that. They do not know that magic, right? If you're a member of your restaurant association, you are funding lobbyists who are in DC like Jeannie and I are right now, but Jeannie and I are fighting for the Raise the Wage Act. We're fighting to help keep our employees across a sector that employs almost 14 million people, that's pre-COVID, 
including our kitchen employees, which never get talked about in these conversations about wages, we're fighting to keep their, to raise their wages and to improve working conditions and to make sure that we're not at a competitive disadvantage if we want to do so. The other folks, the other NRA, the National Wrestling Association, they are our opposition. They are doing the opposite of that right now. They, they do not speak for us. So if you're a member of your restaurant association, dump them and join the Independent Restaurant Coalition. They are fighting for the Restaurants Act, which humble and modest genie here wrote. She she was one of the authors of the Restaurants Act. It's $120 billion direct grant payments to independent restaurants. And you know why the National Restaurant Association doesn't fight for it? Because it prioritizes independent restaurants instead of chains, instead of Darden, right? So I went off on a tangent and I'm sorry, but I feel strongly about that. And I, I, I would love to see them disempowered and the truth about what the National Restaurant Association actually is, that story needs to be told. I think, Mikey, one of the things that you mentioned that I think is important to note is that, um, and I think for your listenership might be good, is that knowing that the National Restaurant Association is putting, I don't even know how many of dollars to continue to exploit our workers, you know, and what they're doing is force feeding lies out there, you know, then all you need to do is look at the seven states that Mikey mentioned. One of the fears that I think restaurant servers have is that they have this notion that has been fed to them by the National Restaurant Association, that their tips are going to go down. It's so important when we say full minimum wage with tips on top, because if you look at the other states, your tips do not go down. In fact, San Francisco has the highest tip percentage of any city in the country, and they have been paying a full minimum wage for decades. So it is not true. It is literally a lie that the National Restaurant Association is spreading to our workers so that they can continue to exploit their workers. That is unacceptable. I was speaking to Josh Harris last week, and he's based in San Francisco. Um, Love him. He's a great thinker, a, a very wise He's and creative an man. Amazing human. Yeah. Um, and he, when we, I was discussing this same thing with him when we came to the question of uh, what should the change about the industry. And he said, um, well, we should stop hiding behind the lie that things just would be irrevocably damaged if we raised the minimum wage and gave a, a, a living wage and a, a, a life worth living to our employees because we've been doing this in San Francisco for ages and it's working and we're doing fine. And I think you can dismantle the argument that it would destroy mom and pop shops to raise the minimum wage just by thinking about uh, something that I think her name is Professor Loza from Georgetown University said when she said that you could stimulate consumer demand, business activity, and job growth because more people would be able to afford a night out. It would generate more revenue for restaurants. And so it's just a cycle in which we'd actually become just as profitable. And you can see that by proof of the states that you've mentioned already. That's right. That's exactly right. So raising minimum wages, it's the minimum wage, right? Our sector has the highest rates of people on public assistance of any sector. That means they don't have enough money in their pockets to live, to feed their families, to pay their rent, right? If you give those people a raise, they, they immediately spend that money. The increase in economic activity happens right now. I was on a, both of us were on a panel with some folks in New Hampshire the other day, and they were asking for some data about how does it stimulate the economy, the, the increased economic activity that you just mentioned. And the, the data is clear. 62% of, of wage increases at the bottom level of the spectrum get spent immediately. And when a dollar gets spent in a community, it gets spent eight times before it leaves the tax pool. That is massive stimulation to the economy. That our folks, we all know, we, we work in restaurants, we eat at restaurants, we go out and we see our friends, right? Our, the, the bartender down the street, our, the server at, at the lunch spot near my house, the person that works in the coffee shop down the street. I know all those folks. We all patronize each other's spaces, right? If you give Jeff, Be Jeff Bezos a raise, it doesn't matter. He already spends as much money as he can. He cannot figure out a way to spend more money to stimulate the economy if you give him a raise. But if you give millions of workers. I, I believe that the Raise the Wage Act that would raise the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour and eliminate the sub-minimum wage would give 35 million Americans a raise. 
That's 10% of our population, of the whole population, not the working age population, the whole population. So that money gets spent right away. Definitely restaurants will see an increase in sales. And, and to Jeannie's point earlier, I heard I had a friend on a call the other day who said, what happens to your tips if you raise the minimum wage all the way? And I said, well, when you go to eat in San Francisco or Seattle or Los Angeles or Las Vegas, do you ask the server or the bartender if they make a full minimum wage? And then when they say yes, you decide not to tip them? No, <laughs> nobody has ever done that. You just tip. That's the culture in America. So tips do not go away, right? And I should mention, in 2018, the Fair Labor Standards Act was passed again through Congress. It has to be repassed every few years. Uh, that The Fair Labor Standards Act was first passed in 1938 in the FDR administration. It, it established a minimum wage. That's where the minimum wage comes from, 1938 legislation. In 2018, a budget rider was added to it. it that, that said that tips are the property of workers. Owners cannot touch tips. But if you pay a full minimum wage, to everybody in your restaurant, you do not take advantage of the subminimum wage, you can mandate a tip share that includes the back of the house. Meaning, finally, cooks and dishwashers can see some of the increased income that comes from tips during a busy shift. I'm, I'm a front of the house person mostly. So, I, you know, I started in the kitchen, but they kicked me out pretty quick. So I remember a lot of Friday and Saturday nights when we were in the weeds all night long and we, we, we worked really hard, we put our heads down and we crushed and we made four or 500 bucks in tips, but we were not allowed to talk about that in front of our kitchen employees, in front of, in front of our team members who work in the hottest zone in the world, right? And they're the ones that allow us the opportunity to interact with our guests in that way. We were not allowed to talk about how we made so much money because they made the same amount of money that Friday or Saturday night when they were sweating their buns off as they made on a Tuesday day shift. When you have when you pay one for wage in this country, you can allow the kitchen to enjoy part of that increased wage and you raise a ceiling for half of our workforce. There are two states where that's not true. I have to make this caveat. New York and Massachusetts have archaic state laws that supersede that budget rider on the Fair, Fair Labor Standards Act. So we're working to change that. We have state level legislation in both of those states that would change that. But the Raise the Wage Act would mean we wouldn't have to work on that in those states. It would do this for the whole country. So it, it lifts all boats. I, I like that saying a bit. Um, but it's also, you know, the misinformation about save our tips is a big old lie. And, and we just want to make sure that people understand that. Dishwashers at my restaurants walk home with over $20 an hour. Servers at my restaurants make more than $40 an hour. So, and we pay one fair wage. We have the whole for many, many years. And I can speak to that as well. I personally work for a restaurant where the way that we've addressed it, and it could be a model that others use, is we keep our menu prices the same, but we just add the same service charge that you would get. And the immediate fear that people have is, okay, so the service charge is already on there. You're not going to make any money on top of that. And if you, and then we've done this where we provide excellent service and we create the right experience. And that's so cherished by people, especially during this time that we're seeing closer to a 30% to a 35, 40% tip percentage. I managed to shift the other day where my servers walked out with almost 50% tip wage increase. And so they're making that minimum, you know, above minimum wage for their services as a front of house staff member, the back of house is being paid an equitable amount, all from that service charge. And that's sustainable and gives people the idea that this is what they should be paying on a bill. They don't get the sticker shock of seeing, oh, now my pasta dish with shrimp is $30 to make an equitable restaurant. They're seeing my pasta dish is $25, but because the service charge is included, everyone's covered. So that might be a way to ease guests' understanding of what it costs to truly run a restaurant. Yeah. Jeannie, would you mind talking about the three service models that we like and why implicit bias is important to think about? Yeah, sure. Um, so we, we recommend one of three business models. One is um, a full minimum wage with tips on top um, that allows you to tip pool with the front and back of the house. What it also does is that it, what it does is it raises the full minimum wage because we know in full minimum wage state, sexual harassment decreases by 50%. 
And why is that? Because in, you know, Southern, I used to work in Pennsylvania, you know, I had to work for $2.83 an hour, $2.83 an hour. I used paychecks were zero, you know, that like covered my taxes. So I knew that I worked for my tips. So what did I have to do as a woman? You know, I had to tolerate so much inappropriate customer behavior. But now in Washington, I get a full um, minimum wage and I am I making that $15 an hour. And if somebody is inappropriate to me, I can be like, buzz off because you know i don't i know i'm not living just for those that the tips for that are given to me from a customer so we get rid of that with paying everyone a full minimum wage and also what it does is like let's say minimum wage in new york city the minimum wage is ten dollars an hour sub minimum wage excuse me and the full minimum wage is 15. so what does that do for the restaurant owner you can you know take five dollars of those tips because you're paying them as an employer in secure wages stable wages and take that 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 unstable portion, the tip portion, and give some of that to the kitchen, right? So then everybody, the front of the house is making the same, and the back of the house gets a little bit of a raise. So that's what Mikey was talking about, the tip sharing. Um, and then the other model is the service charge model that you mentioned. So everybody gets paid a full minimum wage. There's a service fee that's placed on top of that, and that money is distributed however the owner would like amongst the team. And then the last model is um, service uh, service or hospitality included, where it's just everything is baked into the price. Um, we do find that that model is not as preferred by a lot of restaurants, just simply because of what you said, where it's just like, there's a way Americans think about keeping like the price of the dinner separate from the gratuity. And so, you know, so they, that, that does add some sticker shock for folks. So I think the first two models are the ones that most of our members use. And I will say also personally, I like the service charge model, even though I don't use that at my restaurants right now. But there's, a, Jeannie mentioned earlier a statistic about black woman tipped workers making $5 less an hour on average in this country than their white male counterparts. That's not because, and I don't, I, I wanna disabuse any of your listeners from the idea that if you're a harder worker, you can overcome implicit bias. If the data shows that across the board nationally, this is the case, there's a $5 gap per hour. $5 an hour is a lot. That's not because you're a better server or black women are not good servers, right? That's insane to think that. So it is implicit bias, meaning that people do this without knowing it. It's, it's subconscious. You tip less because of whatever frame of reference you have, whatever your personal perspective, the systemic racism that you've you've been grown in as a person. So for me, I prefer the service charge model because it eliminates that opportunity. Um, and then also Jeannie mentioned that you can tip share or, or spread service charge uh, tips around as the owner likes. There's a thing that some of our members have done and, and a lot of people I've talked to recently have been discussing which is they've democratized how the tips or the service charges are distributed. So they get their kitchen employees and their front of the house employees to come together and agree on what is a fair spread, right? Should servers that have been here for 10 years make the same as someone who's brand new to serving and that person make the same as a busser and that person make the same as a line cook or a prep cook? Most places, the answer would be like, no, I don't think that's fair. So they come up with point systems. You know, if you're new, you start with one point. If you, for every year, you gain a half a point or for every position you've cross-trained in, you can gain a half a point. And there's all these cool, you know, ways, dynamic ways to think about it. And the beauty of democratizing it, letting your staff choose is that as an owner operator, you're no longer dictating anything, right? You're, you get to step away and say, look, that's your money. You guys figure it out. Once you've agreed, I will then logistically implement what you've agreed upon. And we can check in with each other every six months, right? Check in every year. We have another voting opportunity. And to me, that is amazing. It's a beautiful system to, to do that. I, I plan to probably try to democratize the distribution in my restaurants very soon because I'm so inspired by this idea. Um, and it creates it creates solidarity among your workforce, and it it it, it, it improves worker power, right? It improves restaurant workers' ability to negotiate their outcomes, right? Their professional outcomes. This is what a, a professionalized industry looks like. To me, I think we we like to say every human is essential and every job has dignity. 
And to me, if, if these are essential workers and dignified work forces, they should have a say in the way that, because there's this weird thing in our industry where I expect our customers to pay our employees directly, that they should have a say in how that's distributed. And I, I love seeing it. I love to see it. Hey, that's so great. I realized that you asked me to talk about the implicit bias and it just like slipped out of my mind. But I think one thing to, to highlight and just to really bring that piece home is that, and this is going to be like personal work to your, to your listeners out there, but think about it. If a black woman comes to your table and she's talking to you about wine, just be honest with yourself. Do you think that she has as much knowledge as the white man, that sommelier that comes to your table? There is an implicit bias there that we're raised with and it's unacceptable. And that's what the service charge does. Is it just eliminates that, you know, and we know studies have shown that people of color are tipped less than white folks. So. Okay. And finally, I know we're belaboring this point a lot, but it's like fascinating. Jeannie and I talk about this for fun too. So uh, some restaurants, the service charge model doesn't work. Like what you mentioned earlier, the rural restaurants, or there's a whole show called diners, drive-ins and dives, right? Like those places, the customer does not expect to see a service charge, right? We were looking up the best restaurants in West Virginia because those um, Senate Democrats who are lean conservative, one of them's from West Virginia, his name is Joe Manchin. So we're trying to find restaurant owners in West Virginia that can help us make the case to Joe Manchin that a raised minimum wage would be a good thing. We were looking up restaurants. What are the best restaurants in West Virginia? And the first one on the list was called Hillbilly Hot Dogs. That's true. That's the first one on the list, um, which probably tastes amazing. I mean, look, if they made the story for the best restaurant in West Virginia, it's probably one of the best hot dogs you could have. I'm certain that their customers would not not expect to see a service charge on their bill. So that's why Jeannie and I both, we we support and uh, understand the need for the three different models, tips on top, service charge, and hospitality included. Depending on the way your operation works, one of those can be right for you. I mean, definitely want to just belabor one more thing on that with the, if you're doing the tips, we definitely encourage you to do the tip pooling with, even if it's just with the front of the house, because then you eliminate the kind of, again, the implicit bias that can be present, you know, so that every server has the opportunity to make the same amount of money, regardless of their race or gender. And to touch on that one briefly, I've worked for the land and sea department and several of their restaurants have a tip share program based on points. Um, there's a statistic out that uh, replacing an employee costs just a regular server costs about $2,000. Just from training, from everything else, you're spending $2,000. If you create a point system that has um, longevity built into it, you're eliminating a lot of turnover because you're incentivizing them to stay. So in the long run, you can save your company just from the average turnover rate, so much money every single year, and also move towards being more equitable and creating a better standard of service. That's right. That's exactly right. Turnover goes down exponentially when uh, when you pay a full minimum wage, when you distribute tips and service charges equitably. There's this weird idea that like our industry is like a bridge industry, right? Like that everybody that works in restaurants are college kids or actors. And there are college kids. I paid for my college as a server and bartender, but now I'm 40 and this is my career, right? So the average age of people that works that work in restaurants continues to go up. Every year it goes up a little bit. That's why professionalizing the industry and recognizing that most people who work in restaurants are not teenagers, right? A lot of them are single moms. So understanding that raising wages is creating economic stability for people, which we desperately need from our workforce. One in two Americans of working age have worked in a restaurant at some point. So understanding that the industry affects our economy in such a large way is really important. And then there's a thing I want to ask you about because you work in restaurants that I, I, have, I struggle to talk about. And I, 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 so I keep asking this question of people and, and trying to figure out how to wrap my head around it. When we talk about tip pooling and, and how that increases equity, inevitably someone, if the room is large enough, someone says, well, I'm really good at my job. I'm a hardworking server. And I know that if we, if we tip pool, 
everyone else is going to be lazy. And then I have to share my hard earned money with the lazy people. What do we do about that? My answer to that is tell the managers that these people are not pulling their weight and then reduce their shifts or whatever, you know, retrain them, give them better tools so that they cannot seem lazy or less, not as good at their job. Do you see that bearing out in your experience in restaurants? Do you see that like, if, cause I know you manage restaurants too. So do you see that if someone is underperforming and they don't deserve quote unquote to be part of the tip pool in the way, in, in the way that it's set up, that it is the manager's responsibility to address that? Or do you think that there's some kind of like natural order to things that only can be addressed through direct money as the incentive? I would say the best way to go about it is to lay the onus on your manager team and to be comfortable knowing that everyone will make a livable wage because it's a matter of empathy at that point. That person saying, well, I make us the most money Actually, the prep cook makes you the most money because if you didn't have someone coming in at 8 a.m. to start the bread that everyone gets to eat for free and to chop all the onions that go in every single dish, because in a restaurant, we all know everything has onions in it. If you have an allium allergy, I'm so sorry. If you aren't thinking about that, then it's your perspective that needs to be adjusted. And when you're taking those questions on the floor, that's a hard thing to tell somebody. Because all they're seeing is, I made $500 tonight. And I was like, you made $500 tonight because there's a chandelier in the atrium. Like, let's, let's be honest. There's an environment that you're a part of. And every piece needs to work before you can get to the tip line. It's not the nicest way to put yes, it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, but it's true. <laughs> I think That's the good. other thing to, to, to that you touched on, I want to just expand upon a little bit, is this team, the mentality that, you know, you're crushing your section, you know, and then not think about the whole restaurant. Like if the other people, other servers, like we need to lift each other up, right? Like you said, a manager is there to provide the tools for us to all to be successful. And that's right. And if you're an awesome server, you should be sharing those tools with your colleagues, because what happens if I'm crushing my section and Mikey is going down in flames, all of those people are never coming back to our restaurant. What does that mean? Then I, instead of having six tables, like, you know, a hundred guests, now I only have 50 guests because Mikey's suffering, you know? So if we all look at the restaurant together as a community, as a whole, then we are, then all of those people are going to come back and that's going to affect my bottom, my tips moving forward, right? Like I can't just think about today. I have to think about my career, right? And so if everybody is successful, again, it's like the all boats rides thing. If we're all working together and I'm an awesome server and I see like, those tables need to be watered. I should go water them, right? Like, what is that? That doesn't even make any sense. Like, of course I'm going to go do that because that's just, I want those customers to come back. Couldn't have said it better and myself. I just like taking care of people. <laughs> you're, in the, you're in the right industry and you're in the right place. Well, I want to thank you both for sharing your insights and for opening my perspective on the structure of restaurants and how we can improve. There's one question I've asked every guest that's been on the podcast and will ever be on the podcast. And I think we've covered almost all the points, but to do it succinctly, I'd like to go back. What about the restaurant industry should be preserved and what should be changed? There's so much that we want to preserve, right? We want to preserve the joy, the laughter, the camaraderie, the community nourishing our guests, learning about the depths of wine and spirits and food, holding space for community. I mean, there's just so much to preserve in our sector. We provide so much to our to our communities. And I just, I'm rambling at this point because <laughs> there's so much. Mickey, do you want to talk about what we should change? Yeah, but I do want to root it in what you, all the things you just said. So the beauty of the industry, right? Like celebrating everyone's wins helping people feel better when they've experienced a, a, a loss of, of some sort, a loss of a job, a loss of a loved one. We come together as community over food and that's what community restaurants are all about. Um, and that to echo Jeannie's point, that's what needs to be preserved. What has to change so that we can protect those parts of the industry is the understanding from our consumers and also, unfortunately, elected officials who make policy that affect our ability to do these jobs, the understanding of the true cost of food and hospitality. It is not something that you can expect to get at a bargain basement price, right? You can't expect people 
to come in and chop onions at eight in the morning and, and prep bread at eight in the morning to make below a living wage, to make poverty wages be on public assistance at higher rates than any other industry. Meaning that taxpayers are subsidizing your 50 cent wing night. That has to change, okay? That has to change. We have to stop thinking that these are bridge jobs for teenagers and recognize the reality that they are careers for many millions of people. And we need to pay for that. And we can afford to pay. We, we will be able to afford to pay for that if people make a little more money. So that's what really, really has to change so that your dishwasher can afford to live near your restaurant without six roommates and without having a second, third job. That's what has to change. And I think it can. We're so close. We're so close to it. So that's why I think, you know, if we can get the Raise the Wage Act passed, it's a level playing field for all restaurants across the entire country, be them in metropolitan cities or in rural areas, everyone would have to play by the same rules. And then we could get back to that community feeling that Jeannie mentioned, where we come together, we talk about wine, we, or we house a bunch of wings, you know, and we, and we watch a football game, like all that stuff is great. And we, we can't, we can't get to it until we address wage justice and racial justice in our industry, which are inextricably linked. So go to raisehighroadrestaurants.org slash petition. That's where you go if you're a restaurant owner. Or if you're not a restaurant owner, go to onefairwage.org and you will find a sign-up sheet to send a letter to your elected officials that can help us save restaurants and, and, and protect the beauty that exists there. I want to thank you both so much for sharing what you're doing to try and improve our industry. It's a subject that's near and dear to my heart. And I'm happy to see people who share that same passion and are boots on the ground to make it happen. Boots in the ground is another one of those uh, military industrial complex sayings that we have. Um, who are known, you're just there and present in creating the change that we need to have for everyone to be happy and healthy. That's a better way to say it. Feet on the street. Thank you so much for Feet having Feet on us. the street. Really there we go. It's been <laughs> such a pleasure. Thank you for tuning in. To find more insightful content, head to yourwaywardmuse.com. And remember Mikey and Jeannie's call to action to contact your representatives to give restaurant workers a more equitable wage. Visit One Fair Wage for more details. We'll see you in a couple days with Josh Harris of Trick Dog. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.